Promise No Promises, Women on Earth. As a sequel to Promise No Promises and Women in Space, the third symposium at the Art Institute, HGK, FHNW in Basel, was dedicated to Earth, its ideas, its spin, its possible dark futures. With Women on Earth, we were seeking to understand the relations between feminism and species coexistence. The issue of nature and of all that is naturalized or deemed unnatural by hegemonic discourses and policy is of particular importance to gender issues, as is science. But a scientific and technical approach to the climate emergency cannot be accurate without taking into consideration how gender, racial and economic violence foster our emergent ecocides, nor by how women, often poor and indigenous women, are overwhelmingly at the forefront of this violence as the very first recipients of. What kind of political and cultural transformation must occur to make these entanglements obvious and of vital concern? How to counter this violence in all its manifold forms? Feminists and global feminisms have always shared a critical concern for science, being that this has long been the field on which the subjugation of women and all the world's others has rested in part. The critique of a patriarchal pseudoscience is also built into feminism by its very nature. And what is that? By addressing questions of a female nature, whatever that is, and by addressing the question of human nature, another ringing question, and then deconstructing both, we not only lay open the question of the power of knowledge, but also the more epistemological questions. What to do with objectivity? What to do with certain notions of distance or neutrality? What to do with an increasing quantification of what we call scientific knowledge? How do we beat the regular and systematic recurrence of exclusion of the same others who recur and repeat across history and its power struggles and the persistence of this process of othering itself? Our guests were Rosella Biscotti, Neha Choksi, Ingela Iermann, Institute of Queer Ecology, Sophie Jung, Lusanne König, Thomas Lempertz, Agnes Meyer-Brandis, New Mineral Collective, Tanja Busse and Emilia Scanolutje, Katrin Niedermeyer, Heather Philipson, Mathilde Rosier and Lena Maria Thüring. I was like um, not long ago in London and then you see how people is possessed by certain narratives and then you need to ask yourself where are these narratives coming from and then um, if you go back for example to the history of myths and uh, to a text which was very important in the 50s it was published in 1949 by Joseph Campbell uh, which is the structure of the myth and how the structure of the myth determines the structure of the hero and how the structure of the hero coincides 100% with the male hero and how the structure of the hero coincides 100% with the way that the hero takes uh, the challenges of, uh, of, the, of life, of the world, and how the challenges that the hero is taking upon himself are the challenges that affect the collective, the public space. 
So if you look at all the movements and of activist movements that I respect very much, um, you can see also the structure of the heroes. And you can see how certain ways of understanding environmentalism and certain ways of understanding our relationship with Earth and with life and with intersensing interspecies communication has almost no reception. And what has reception is this kind of more heroic way of structuring the rescue, the salvation, the challenge. There is a problem, there is an emergency, there's an urgency, climate emergency. So we are entitled to, you know, rescue nature, rescue the planet. And this rescue may um, involve violence because the hero, of course, in order to counteract the violence of the bad powers, need to put in place the good powers. But this counteracting of the bad needs also violence. So violence is key to solve the challenges. So for every encounter with the bad, the hero is entitled to use the weapons, like the police, if uh, your life is threatened. So it's very interesting that those that they were anti-violent for many, many, many centuries, and it's not a question of the 20th century, it's a question of indigenous rituals and cultures, it's a question of uh, you know, many women artists and practitioners in different fields. They have been trying to uh, implement a different sensing, this different sensing that should be non-dialectical, that would not actually determine a difference in between us and nature, that would merge it in a, let's say, post-humanistic way, as many philosophers are trying to put forward, this did not have the same perception as the heroic way, the way where we actually do it now, synchronize your bodies in the public space with the body of nature. You go on the streets, many millions go on the streets, and this act of synchronization has a much let's say, better reception than the thousands of bodies that during centuries and during, um, you know, many hours of practicing a certain, um, you know, way of entangling with earth has less of a reception. And I think that this is um, a reflection that I would like to, to share with you and, and, and see um, what do we perceive, how do we understand things, and what are our referencing to frame what we see. And it's, it's fundamental, because if we don't reflect on that in a fundamental way, still the separation in between certain practices and others are going to be perceived as softer, or they are going to be perceived as not responding to the urgency. Because what's an artist doing by trying to, you know, intercommunicate in a intelligent way with animals or earth if uh, this is not going to solve our problems. Uh, this is one of the work uh, that you see on screen is uh, called Life Feed. And uh, I'll go back into the research to tell you about this uh, core flower called uh, Amorphophallus titanum. Uh, what you see here is an image of, uh, that uh, I took at the Bogor Botanical Garden in Indonesia this year. And uh, I was looking for this flower. This flower is extremely famous and uh, is becoming more and more famous because Botanical Garden have it all over the world and is uh, a flower that attracts 
uh, in the sense that uh, it's a flower uh, that attracts many visitors because it's very special. But actually, when you arrive in the place where various of these flowers should be, there are no flowers. And that's because the Amorphophallus, and I can show you, so this is the place where the Amorphophallus should be, and this is the sign for it. Actually, the Amorphophallus is almost all the time invisible because it grows under the soil. It grows as a tuberous, and uh, it's a tuberous for an almost invisible for seven, 10 years before producing a flower. Uh, from time to time, it produces one leaf. Uh, I don't have an image of it, but you can find it easily online. It's very beautiful. It's one leaf that camouflage itself uh, as, uh, as a various leaf, al almost as a tree, but it's actually one unique leaf. Then, then it falls off, and then uh, the tubers keep growing under the, the soil uh, till at a certain point after 10 years, it managed to have the energy to produce one flower. And um, this flower, it became, uh, it was discovered uh, by, uh, by Europeans, actually by an Italian botanist, Beccari. Uh, it was discovered at the end of the, uh, of the 19th century and immediately became extremely popular because it's a flower that grows between one meter 50 till two meter 50 high. It's the biggest uh, unbranched fluorescence in uh, in, uh, in the world uh, known to us. So it became immediately touristic uh, in the sense that people were traveling uh, to Sumatra and looking for this flower. And this flower only uh, stays alive for one day, maximum two days. What it does uh, is a full uh, ephemeral body. It uh, grows uh, extremely fast in one day. It opens up, uh, even it eats at a body temperature and it smells very, very badly. has been described as a sock, as a dirty diapers, as a roadkill, and this is a more, uh, like, uh, more uh, scientific uh, description of the smell of the flower. It smells so badly, and that's the name. Core flower actually, it's uh, is named after a carcass, so it's a rotting body. And uh, that's to attract um, insects, uh, some specific insects that get trapped into the, the body of the flower and then can impollinate. And uh, they get trapped for a series of hours because the, this particular flower has uh, inside uh, bo uh, both the female and the male part, but uh, it doesn't impollinate itself. So it will always need another flower. That's what is very interesting about flowers, that actually they will always need the environment, insects, animals, or men, as you will see, to impollinate them. And, uh, uh, and then after it dies. I got very interested when I saw first time this flower. Actually, I saw it because it's a huge event, but also I saw, I saw that because it was guarded. So, and, uh, and I always uh, saw this flower uh, or in their original escape with somebody because it's also the, what what the human that wants to give the measure of his discovery, or oh, I saw it in botanical garden. I started to compile a list. Uh, I have it somewhere, but every time it blows somewhere in the world and uh, is becoming a really a major event with uh, so many visitors. And uh, so what you see actually is uh, really the difference. So the majority of botanical garden private collection, they keep the flower very isolated. Uh, and uh, and also, especially they, when it blows, uh, 
uh, it becomes, because it's a huge event and there are many people arriving, it gets always uh, uh, like fenced and uh, people can go around. So this is uh, one of the, of the pieces I made in relation to um, Amorphophallus. It's called Life Feed. And uh, I designed the, the Amorphophallus. I designed it uh, as, a, as a full body, so in, uh, in the real size. But at the moment in which uh, I was uh, researching, I, I decided to use only what was, uh, in a way, the color of the shadow that I had designed for it, and, uh, and focus more on this idea of events uh, and uh, going up and down on this flower that you can basically experience live feed 24-7 at the moment. And uh, focusing, you will see a lot of my work, I, I use uh, the idea of the body, but also the essence of the body. And, uh, uh, and here, of course, uh, I use the is shadow and the fact that it's uh, not necessarily up, but it's uh, also upside down. It's a unique textile, it's 40 meter, and uh, it's uh, silk screened uh, uh, with, uh, with the flower. Uh, as in a form of events up and down. And uh, close to it, you see the beginning of a next work, which is a series of portraits. And uh, they are made in rubber. And uh, this work is actually talking about portraying female, some uh, female characters from a novel, a tetralogy. Uh, so four books uh, written by uh, Pramudia, uh, that is a very famous uh, Indonesian writer. Uh, the books are written between the 80s and 88, and the four books are written without ever going back and edit. So they are written as one long story. Uh, the story is mainly um, talking, there is one main character, that is Minke, and he is, uh, is a young Javanese uh, from the noble class, and he, he goes to a Dutch school, and, uh, and he kind of, uh, uh, he starts to understand I mean, embeds the, the European culture, but then at a certain point, he starts to understand what's happening in Java and, uh, and the politics around South Asia. And uh, he, through the also encounter of various characters, he, um, he starts to form uh, the first, he formed the first newspaper uh, in uh, Java that uh, starts, is in Malay, uh, in the language that many people could, uh, could have understand at that time, and uh, it's talk about the injustice that is happening. But uh, actually, I'm not talking uh, in this show and this work about this character, but I take few of the female character uh, developed by Pramudia, and uh, in particular, looking uh, upon, uh, they are very strong character, even though the narration in the books goes always through male voice, which is all this journalist Mike or a governmental representative of the Dutch government. Uh, and uh, but uh, I I extract this uh, female character and somehow I develop them in uh, sculpture or in portrait of them. Um, and uh, they have uh, um, they they are particularly interesting to me because they are both fighting uh, uh, the Javanese patriarch patriarchy and uh, the Dutch colonization. And the stories are very impressive. And somehow I take them out as they will be like characters that you can recall every day and you can narrate their story. And they are representative also of a, um, of a, um, of a, of a sort of a new generation that comes up in Indonesia. This, for example, Surati. Surati is, uh, is a woman from a village in Java, 
and it was happening quite often. She was uh, asked to be the concubine of a Dutch sugar uh, uh, manager, sugar mill manager, and um, her father was uh, employed by the, um, by the mill as administrator, and he could not refuse. Uh, because, of course, uh, he needed a job and for various reasons. So, and this is, uh, this, this is actually one of the recalling story of the, um, in, the, in the book. And, uh, and she says to the father, okay, I go. Uh, and uh, she packs her clothes that are usually batik, and this is part of the work. So all the portraits uh, are inspired by batiks which were, together with jewelry, the only possession that female could take with them. And of course, they have these double uh, things of being making them beautiful, and uh, at the same time, so wrapping, and also like at the same time, uh, we could say protected, but also uh, taking off their freedom. Uh, but uh, at the same time, they are their property, so, and they are very expensive to make because they take a lot of time and they are representative of uh, many things because the drawing, uh, they talk about where you come from, which classes you are, what is your, uh, uh, your relation with, uh, with particularly with, uh, with uh, your, social, uh, uh, your social structure and etc. Uh, so Surati says to the father, I'll go and uh, she takes her batik, the best batik, she takes her makeup, but instead of uh, going directly to the house of this manager, she goes to a town that is uh, totally uh, locked off because it's infected by smallpox. And she goes in and she uh, lays with dead bodies, she gets infected. And then she re puts on her best batik, puts on makeup, and goes and gives herself to this man. And then he gets infected, and almost the whole town he dies. And uh, she managed to recover, and she stays as a deformed woman. So of course, it is really like a super, uh, a very strong story. And uh, um, she, as well as other, uh, as you will see here, this sanicam, which is a very long textile, and is that represents our changing all life. Um, the textile, as I said, that are the drawing on, on this sculpture are made by thinking about the story, but also like where are they coming from and how the flowers or these decorative elements are used within that particular location where they come from to represent something. Uh, for example, this, uh, this is based on a textile that is called Day and Night, that you can reverse, basically, and is from the 19th century, beginning of 20th century, and uh, because Sanikam is a very, uh, is a woman that also was given as a concubine, but uh, she managed uh, to, uh, by reading and by managing the company, she managed to become a very outspoken person and uh, very independent. Um, uh, the, the, all the portraits are made in um, rubber, so that goes back to the plantation, and uh, which is something that connects all the work. And uh, uh, as you, pro you probably know, rubber comes from tree, tree uh, from the rubber tree, is uh, is actually the latex. It comes from inside of the tree that gets the uh, uh, the trunk gets cut. It it has one cut, and then uh, the 
the latex comes out and gets collected in cups and then it gets processed. The latex I use is coming from one of the first, actually the first plantation was made in Sumatra in 1920-something and uh, by a, a Belgian man that had take seeds from Congo and then uh, um, transport it to, to Sumatra and make the trees grow. And uh, the plantation is still there. Of course, the trees are not the same anymore because the trees has a span of life of around 30 years. And for me, it was very important to choose a material that was coming from another living element to then, but also like in a sort of uh, violent way, because of course we are talking about extraction and plantation to write and to talk about these women. Um, this is, uh, maybe I tell you the story of Annalise and then I close. Annalise is uh, the daughter of, uh, of Sanikem and uh, uh, the, this Dutch manager called Melema. And uh, she's a very beautiful woman in her uh, teenager uh, period. Uh, she got married to this journalist, uh, what had to become journalist, Minke. And uh, they get married with a Muslim uh, uh, writ. And uh, at a certain point, uh, the, her father dies. The real son, so the, son, the legitimate son that lives in Holland, requested uh, the court of Amsterdam for the property. And uh, so, and uh, as an indigenous woman, the mother, Sanikam, cannot uh, own anything. And as I was saying before, the only thing you could own is your own buttocks. Uh, so the whole property, and there is a big trial. They are the first one to speak in the trial, uh, to defend themselves in the trial as indigenous women. But uh, the court rules that actually all the property needs to go to the legitimate son on Melemer and uh, including the daughter of Sanikem. As a Sanikem, as an indigenous woman, has no right not even on his own daughter. So Annalise gets shipped and, uh, from uh, uh, Surabaya to, Rot to Rotterdam, I believe, uh, to Holland, and then uh, there she dies. Um, so basically she gets ships like an object. And uh, this is a batik that is, uh, uh, is from, let's say the, the motifs uh, come from Surabaya and I wanted to pin this moment of her life in which she changes location. She is basically removed from her own land and shipped to Europe. Also what, uh, what is interesting, the first image of the show I, in which uh, the sculpture appears, you will see is uh, yellow, golden, and here is becoming brown. Uh, when I saw, of course, rubber, I was uh, uh, very interested in the resemblance to skin. And also, rubber is very famous for the flexibility and for the transparency, and for this variation of brown that produce. So it's constantly changing with the environment. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Krajina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. 
The podcast is produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Institut du Souche, Art Station Foundation Switzerland. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and sound design Elena Zisa. Music Susanne König. Technical support Esther Hunziger. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found at museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Copyright Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut Souche, Art Stations Foundation CH 2020.